From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. I felt that the closest connection to really feeling like you are absolutely a part of the success of a company is to be held accountable to the top line growth of that company. And you can't do that without understanding the company very intimately. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Judy Hand, Chief Revenue Officer at T-Tech. After spending a few minutes with Judy, you'll discover that she's one of those rare people who's managed to blend a hard-charging, results-driven orientation with tremendous compassion and humility. She's developed these qualities thanks to her penchant for throwing herself into tough situations and relying on leadership and great teams to figure them out. Judy is no stranger to big companies. She ran a $7 billion division at AT AT&T but she also flourishes on a much smaller stage. Today, we'll learn about the formula Judy applies to transform companies into sales powerhouses, why she's so adamant that sales and marketing belong under one roof, and her secret to balancing professional and personal worlds. Let's dive into the conversation. Judy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Judy, I understand that you have actually rubbed shoulders with Sandra Day O'Connor. I think we need to start there, a celebrity in her own right. Tell me a little bit about that story. Yeah, amazing. So when I was in business school, uh, a group of us took a trip out to Washington, D.C. to meet with various representatives, uh, government officials, and the women in my group had the opportunity to meet with Sandra Day O'Connor in her chambers at the Supreme Court. She happened to be a graduate of of the school that I was in at the time, and so she very graciously opened her doors and had us uh, come and speak with her in her chamber. She was not wearing her robe, though. What is it that inspires you about Sandra Day O'Connor? You know, I think she was the first, right? I mean, she was a trailblazer. She was the first female Supreme Court justice, and that takes, you know, obviously amazing uh, you know, experience and and credentials, but but takes courage. And that's really who she is as a person, a very, very courageous, amazing uh, person. And so it was it was a real treat for me. Well, since we're on the topic of trailblazers, we need to talk about your mother as well. She is a trailblazer in her own right. Tell us a little bit about your mom. Yeah, my mom uh, started a small company when I was, I think, four years old. And I often tell people I grew up under her desk, and I mean that literally and figuratively. So she she had a company that began um, doing market research in the home. Uh, her first client was actually um, the Yellow Pages uh, companies that would hire her to do surveys of consumers and how they used the Yellow Pages that were used for sales programs um, for those companies. And so she began that company uh, when I was four years old, and it ended up becoming a fairly significant company. It obviously went out of the home into a business setting, and she did that. She retired the day I graduated from business school. 
How did she actually build the company up from basically her and an individual business to something where she was employing hundreds of employees? Yeah, the company started with about 10 people, which were primarily uh, friends of hers who wanted to earn extra money after their you know, husbands had to come home from work. Think about this. This was in the 60s, right? And and so she had gotten a contract with the phone company at the time uh, to do this work and established kind of an entire process that allowed them to do it remotely. As she became successful in, at that, you know, the early 70s uh, came around and the work needed to be done with a lot of uh, automation. So she was receiving things through computer printouts. They were needing to use automatic dialers things that did not allow the work to be done remotely at that time. So she opened up a contact center basically uh, to do the work. And ultimately I think she, she typically employed between four and 600 people, which is kind of how the company was sized up until the point when she decided to retire. One of the things I'm really excited about as we move out of COVID is we've opened up a lot of opportunities, obviously, to bring people back to the office, but also allow people to work from home. I think that unlocks a workforce and a talent pool that previously we didn't have access to. And in some respect, it's a little bit of back to the future where this is kind of the environment that you're describing that your mother started off her business in. I know, isn't that a, a kind of a full circle moment, right? So, and I often reflect on that, that back in the 60s, people were able to do this from home. And now fast forward to 2021, and we've got probably 50,000 people right now working from home in every part of the world. And, you know, technology has allowed that to happen, right? So not only great broadband, great, you know, uh, hardware and software technology, but also um, just the fact that that people have this opportunity to continue to work and stay safe. And that's what's really been amazing is that because these kind of cloud-based platforms have been built that have allowed people to work virtually, uh, we've been able to keep people employed during a really critical time. And that's been that's been really exciting for me. There was a great piece in the New York Times a few years ago about a an entrepreneur. He decided he'd, he'd made his fortune and he wanted to open up doors for other people. He went to Mongolia, of all places, and started a little bit of a, a project where he found high potential young students. He married that with technology and remote learning and basically got these young students onto the Internet and signed up for courses that were offered across the world. So it turns out that there was uh, one student he found signed that student up for an MIT course in physics. It was one of the hardest courses that MIT offered. And this student crushed it, was among like the 95th percentile in terms of how he scored. And he was only 13 years old. So he ended up getting a scholarship to MIT. But I think about I think about what happened there and you have someone who maybe a decade, two decades before would have never had the opportunity to contribute, to develop themselves like they did, but they had the horsepower. And that's what I'm so excited about is people that have the horsepower are now becoming enfranchised to bring that to whatever it is they do and really make a contribution. Well, and the physical location isn't the limiting factor any longer. So, you know, for us in the work we do, we usually hired within a certain geographic kind of footprint, right? And 
So you only had the availability of the workforce within that geographic footprint. We've opened that geographic footprint to the world. And so if I'm looking for unique languages or unique certifications or licenses or what have you, or people that are just huge advocates of a given brand, I can go and find those people anywhere in the world. And so just imagine what that does, right? What kind of service then we can provide for our customers because we aren't bound to a zip code. All right, well, let's get back to your your mom, working for your mom. I heard a rumor that your mom may have fired you at some point. Is is Can you confirm or deny that rumor? Yes. So when you talk to me, I can confirm that rumor. And I think it was a half dozen times over. I worked for her through my summers, high school and college. And I'm pretty sure it was about a half dozen times. She will tell you that she never fired me. The truth is that... Um, you know, she held me very accountable and she felt that because I was her daughter, I had to be held to a, the highest possible standard because she wanted to make sure people understood that the reason why I worked there is because I earned it every step of the way. So every time I would ask for a day off to go to a concert with my boyfriend or what have you, she would say, that's it. If you obviously don't want the job, you're fired. So I guess the good news is she would hire me back. Um, after a couple of days, but you know, she really drove accountability into me, and I to to this day I am great, very grateful to her for that. But she and I laugh about it a lot because she swears she didn't fire me, and I distinctly remember being fired by her. So tell us a little bit about about what you learned just watching your mom uh, from her example of how to run a business. Yeah, absolutely. I was just so unbelievably fortunate because. Uh, she ran a business when that wasn't very common. And she ran a business by blending, you know, her business, which was her passion with her family. And so that was the first thing I learned is that you you can blend your life together, that if you are doing what you love to do and you're passionate about it, there's not a reason to completely separate it. And so what that allows is it allows you to walk into your business as the same person, right? I think it really allows for authentic leadership because the compassionate, genuine, intelligent, uh, nurturing person that she is, is who she is regardless. And so that's really what I learned is one, how to blend you know, your life together so that you never feel like you're waking up every morning and kind of picking your executioner that day. Who's gonna be upset with you that day? Um, that's kind of one, but two, be yourself. Be, bring your authentic personality to the job, and you will be most successful if you do that. You know, we had the opportunity actually yesterday to host uh, an outstanding speaker, Joanne Lublin, who was a former editor of the Wall Street Journal, published a book called Power Moms. And she had a fascinating perspective that I think is very in line with what you just shared, that this idea of blending your personal and your professional life to bring your authentic self to whatever you do. And, and she also used the term called swaying. Um, you can't be in a binary mode where at one point you're this person and at another point you're that person. You, you need to adjust, um, obviously, based on the demands that are placed upon you. But this idea of bringing your whole self to whatever you do um, is, is so critical at being effective and, and energized in, in your profession and in your personal life. Yeah, there's a quote I heard very, very many years ago about posing, right? It's like, if you pose at some point, you're going to forget the pose. <laughs> and I think that's, um, I think that's very true. 
So um, is there one experience that stands out in your mind from your mom that really kind of drove home the kind of person she was and the way she thought about the the team of people that she built up? Yeah, absolutely. There's one I think about all the time, and, and I brought it back to my own experiences when I've needed to. So she had a wonderful uh, manager that worked for her, and it was very apparent that this manager was a victim of domestic abuse. And it was obvious when she would come to the office, you could tell that um, you know, she was uh, she was a victim of domestic abuse and my mother would not pry, but she would always say, I am here whenever you need me, however you need me, I'm here to help you. And that was kind of just understood. And one morning at 2 a.m., she got a call at home and this woman had finally made the very courageous choice to leave. And she was at the airport and she needed my mother to bring her fi- her, her final paycheck in cash so that it couldn't be traced she didn't, you know, have to take a check and cash it in the in the new location that she was going to. And my mother did not hesitate. She got up, she put on her clothes. She went to, I think she had to go to multiple ATMs because at the time she could only withdraw a certain amount of money per ATM. And she literally, uh, and I went with her. So I remember this. I think I was like 14 at the time. And my father thought, you know, this is not a good idea. And uh, we met her at the airport and we gave her, um, and I'll never forget because her her jaw was wired shut. And um, she was uh, she boarded a plane and my mom handed her the cash and she never thought twice about it because it's what you do. It's what you do. These are people that you care about. And uh, I think about that all the time. And that speaks volumes to the kind of person she was, the kind of company she ran um, and um, the kind of leader that she is. So fast forward to your career. Can you think of a, a specific time when those lessons came to the fore and influence the way that you treated someone or the way that you handled a particular situation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my first 18 years, right out of undergraduate school, 22 years old, I start in a in um, kind of one of the regional telcos. And at the time, uh, this uh, the telco was about a year after transitioning from really being a franchise kind of pseudo government protected market share business to highly competitive uh, business. And so as a result of that, our cost structure needed to get into line. And as a result of that, we had to right size our business often, which meant that I had to lay people off. And I real it was a very, very difficult thing to do. But I learned by thinking about the way she handled situations, how to do it with compassion and how to recognize how difficult this is for people, not just because it's their livelihood, but it's also their pride. It's, it's their identity and really bringing that to, to that. And not only worrying about those people that I had to let go and helping them think about how this might present new opportunities for them going forward, but worrying about the people that remained and how they needed help as well in not feeling guilty, you know, that they, they were, uh, they survived, right? The, the cuts. And so, so I unfortunately just given the situation in the industry I was in, did that a bit, had to do that quite often. And I really was able to think back about how she treated employees, uh, with passion, with compassion, uh, to, to do that very, very difficult job. That's a wonderful story. Uh, I've shared this experience as, as well on previous episodes, but, I remember going to work with my dad as a kid. I was probably 10 years old and we were heading out of the office one day and my dad walked over to the security guard and started to talk to the security guard that was there at the front the front door 
he knew the person's name. He knew the family members. It was clear that they were on a uh, that they had built a friendship. Well, as a ten year old, you tend to think that the security guard is the boss of everything. <laughs> he's got the badge. He's got you know a gun by his side. And I was so impressed that my dad actually knew the security guard. Now, obviously, in hindsight, that story takes on a very different meaning. I'm still so impressed that my dad knew the security guard, but it's because my dad cared about everybody. And it didn't matter if you were the security guard or if you were a chief lieutenant on his team. That that experience, he didn't say anything, but just observing left an indelible mark on me. I remember when I started my first job, it was in consulting. And it was an intimidating time for me. I was uh, somewhat fearful because I was walking into an experience I didn't really understand. And I remember I got to work and course, there was a security guard outside of the elevator. And I said hello to the security guard and we started a conversation. And that was an interesting way for me to ground myself and remind myself that at the end of the day, we're all people and what we do is about people. And in a, in a strange sense, I got confidence from that experience. And I was reminded of my dad, who he was and who he became, and that that's the way that he did it. That's Judy Hand, Chief Revenue Officer at T-Tech. When we come back, Judy will talk about why she decided to take a detour through business school just when her career was starting to heat up. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Judy Hand, Chief Revenue Officer at T-Tech. Many sales executives wonder if it makes sense to head back to business school once their career starts to hum. Judy is an adamant yes and explains some of the surprising lessons that she learned that ultimately allowed her to amplify her impact and influence. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your education as well. You went back and got an MBA after having worked for several years. And I'm interested to find out what kind of dimensionality that brought to your career. Well, first of all, why did you decide to go back and get an MBA? Yeah, I was 12 years into my career. And, you know, you would think that I had had enough on the job training to not feel like I needed to go back to school. But actually, um, here's here's what happened. And I remember it really vividly. You know, it was in the fall. Uh, fall was what I used, what I, I refer to as planning season, right? Which is the season for a couple of months that you're planning for the next year, right? You're thinking about what uh, strategies are we going to deploy? What tactics are we going to deploy? Therefore, what outcomes are we going to commit to? And I was sitting in the boardroom in our offices and we were talking about the year and the challenges that we had and how we were going to address those challenges going into the next year. And I literally just had this epiphany that I had no, I had grown up in this business and this industry. So I had no way to think about those challenges any differently than the way I had thought about them for the first 12 years. So I was just going to recycle ideas, right? And that felt wrong. It felt like I absolutely was not going to be uh, of benefit to the company if I did not have a broader context to think about and to speak to. And so I decided at that point in time that I either needed to completely switch industries and go learn a new industry, 
Or what I decided to do is go to graduate school and pick one where there was a lot of, of uh, different cultures represented, a lot of different industries represented, and really learn from my fellow students and my professors and, and the such to gain that context that I was missing. So I walked away and and went back to school, which for me is an incredibly decadent thing to be able to do, to spend two years having somebody else teach you when I was a boss for many, many years. So people expected me to teach them, if you will. And now I was going to have this wonderful luxury of having others teach me. And it was just, um, it was fantastic. So what were the key takeaways from business school for you? Uh, one was, uh, you know, when I walked in on the first day uh, with Keds on, it was very obvious that I was an older student. <laughs> so that, you know, that was uh, that was humbling for me. But the other really humbling thing was I honestly felt like I was the most ignorant person in every class. I truly it was the most humbling experience. The quality of the people that I went to school with was second to none. And I walked away from there realizing I am best served if I always feel like I'm the most ignorant person in every room that I'm in. Because that means that I've done the hardest job that I have, which is to find the right people, enable them uh, to be successful, and and really, uh, re really, you know, hone that talent. And so I absolutely learned that. I think business school is intended to give you much more than you can handle much more than you can handle. It's why I took speed reading before I went back to business school, right? I knew that there'd be more uh, content than I could absorb. And the reason that they put you in case teams, because it teaches you to realize that you need to surround yourself with subject matter experts, that you can't be the subject matter expert. And frankly, you can't handle all the work yourself. So your job is to, run, to surround yourself with teams. And that's honestly one of the biggest takeaways that I, with, that I got from graduate school is, Surround yourself with with amazing teams, people that are experts in various different um, you know areas that you need, and together you will deliver the kinds of outcomes. If you didn't do that, you didn't survive graduate school, or you frankly didn't sleep for two years, you know. And so you were you were forced to really understand how to do that well. And I absolutely learned that from graduate school, and it was um, it was an amazing experience. And then the last thing I learned was the global perspective, you know. In the United States, we used to use the phrase rest of world, R-O-W. You used to see it like in strategy documents. And I'll never forget one of my classmates, a woman from India, said to me, Judy, with all due respect, it's most of world, M-O-W, that the if the United States thinks that they are, you know, the, the biggest part of the world and then there's kind of everything else, that is the wrong perspective. It's most of the world is everything else. And that is, um, you know, from that day on, I've had global jobs. And I really am grateful for that because there were 17 countries represented in my class. And that gave me a really terrific perspective. You know, one of the challenges of being in charge is that you typically do know, uh, at least in certain areas, more than a lot of other people in the room, not because you're smarter, but simply because of the scope of your responsibility and what you're engaged with on a daily basis. I love your point, though, about surrounding yourself with people that are smarter, surrounding yourself with environments where you have to learn, because that does bring an inherent humility. 
But as you get higher and higher in an organization, I think you need to work harder and harder to put yourselves in those kind of positions. That actually, that's a great segue. I know you're a big fan of John Hennessy, uh, his book, Leading Matters. Let's talk a little bit about that and maybe how that dovetails with this conversation we're having. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an amazing book. Um, and it's really, he takes his, you know, decades of experience both in uh, at Stanford as well as uh, in, start, in starting up a couple of tech companies and his observations around leadership traits, leadership characteristics. And he organizes the book by those characteristics. And the, the chapter that meant the most to me uh, is called Humility. And I think partially because as you read the book, it's the very first chapter, and it's probably a bit startling to some people that what do you mean? Humility is like a leadership trait because you always hear leadership traits are you know, collaboration and teamwork and, and, you know, strategic thinking, but humility. And it's really to step back and acknowledge first and foremost, we all are, are lucky, right? And, and I think about that. I'm lucky that I was born, you know, in the, in the time in which I was born into the family in which I was born into, into the opportunities that I've been given. And if you really think about that, you also realize uh, with humility that you need the people that work for you more than they need you. And if you and if you operate that way, if you lead that way, then that's really what servant leadership is about, right? I work for my people, not the other way around. And I often say to them, I'm your lobbyist. That's the way I think about it, right? So because I work for the CEO of a company, because I spend every quarter speaking to our board, I am their lobbyist for what we need to deliver the commitments that we've made to this business. And, and I think about that because I work for them. And that, that particular chapter really, I think, drove that home is that if you lead with humility, you will surround yourselves with people uh, that, that will work you know, terrifically with you because they know you're there to serve them. There's a, a great story. It's about Frank Wells, who is the CFO at Disney, uh, working with Eisner. So this is one of the, the heydays of Disney in the late 90s. And we obviously know about Michael Eisner because he was so, so high profile and, and so successful, honestly. Frank Wells was the guy, though, that financed the dream and candidly was a virtuoso in on the financial side of the business. Frank carried a slip of paper in his pocket for 30 years. And on that piece of paper, it said, humility is the final achievement. And I think about a person every day before they go to work, looking at that slip of paper and reminding themselves humility is the final achievement. What, what a powerful sentiment to carry with you throughout the rest of the day. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And I often... Um say to people, particularly if I'm interviewing people for executive roles and I, they ask me, you know, questions about, you know, keys to success and what have you. And I say to some, you, you find a point in time in your career where you're over yourself. And I think once you've, that, that's a very uh, liberating place, right? Where you, you're not trying to prove anything to yourself any longer. You just are really enjoying getting the work done, right? And doing it along with others, but you just, you just get over yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great thought. All right. So you spent 18 years at U.S. West. What 
what incentivized you to stay at one company for almost two decades? Yeah, wow. Um, you know, I, I walked in at 22 years old, um, you know, as a management trainee. And what that meant is, you know, identified as a potentially a high potential leader. And so uh, at the time, the thought was to create general manager like people. So they wanted us to every six months for some period of years, uh, learn a different part of the business. And I didn't want to do that at that time. I wanted to become an expert in a, in an area. And so I chose marketing as kind of that area. And so what I then uh, really set out to do, and fortunately was given the opportunity to do, is to learn every single part of marketing. So for 10 of those 18 years, I actually was able to, to run product management, product development, advertising, segment marketing, solutions development. Just think about all the various functions of marketing over the years. And there were times that I, in order to get the opportunity to go and, and, and learn that part of marketing, I actually once took a demotion to do that. And I remember people saying, what are you thinking? I'm, I'm thinking I want to learn this. And the reason that was so important to me is I really felt that I wanted to be a practitioner of the work. I didn't want to just be an orchestrator of the work. When I, and ultimately I became VP of marketing and I wanted to, once I got to that place, realize that when I asked somebody to, to produce, let's say, a, a marketing campaign and I gave them a week to do so, I knew what I was asking of them. I knew what it took to get the work done, right? I wanted to have that level of credibility and understanding because I really didn't want to just be a leader that presides over work. I wanted to know how the work got done. I wanted dirt under my fingernails, right? And so, so that's what I was able to do for the first, you know, 12 years of my uh, time at uh, at US West. And then that's when I walked away, went to graduate school. I came back to US West after graduate school. Um, and it's funny because at the time, my son was nine, my oldest son was nine years old and he wanted us to stay in Palo Alto. And he was so upset with me because he said, mom, why don't you just go buy a business like those other moms do? And I thought, oh, I love that I've raised this liberal kid who thinks his mother should go buy a business. And then he said, oh, you go talk to those men who will loan you money. And then I was, I realized, oh my God, <laughs> this child is nine and he understands what a venture capitalist is. So that was a little bit frightening, but I really felt a need to go back to this company that had given me so much for 12 years. But as I went back, that's when they gave me the opportunity to kind of step up my accountability and now begin to run sales programs, right? So I started with running kind of new sales programs that needed to be incubated and then ultimately ran all of sales. And I loved the connection to the accountability of sales. Having both sales and marketing in my background then set me up to be a general manager, right? Because I had I had an understanding of how to drive growth for a business. So then US West gave me the chance to be the general manager of the small business division and then the consumer division. So it just it really fit beautifully with what I was trying to learn uh, as a as a leader, and they gave me the opportunity to do that. I've heard you use the word accountability several times, and actually going back to your your days working for your mother, I know that that was a value that she instilled in you. Some people feel the pressure and and crumble. I feel like though, because it, it has been such a part of you all of your life, it, it really is something that energizes you, knowing that people trust you 
and in our relying on you, that really allows you to rise to the challenge. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, there's something about how objective results are, right? It's not, um, you know, I, I often think you're not paying me to think you're paying me to do right. You just ha- you just assume I know how to think. And so I love the idea that there are scorecards and they're they're you know, you, they're not up for debate. Right. You either hit the numbers or you don't hit the numbers. And if you don't hit the numbers, you try to really understand why what needs to happen in order for you to hit the numbers. So I love just that 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 clear connection. And, and frankly, I wanted to be very close to the money, for, for lack of a better term, like be very close to what drives growth for a business. And what drives growth for a business is, is sales, right? And so I felt that the closest connection to really, you know, feeling like you are absolutely a part of the success of a company is to be held accountable to the top line growth of that company. And you can't do that without understanding the company very intimately. And I just find that challenge to be something that uh, is energizing and it gives me a reason to you know, work really hard. I heard about an interesting study that Bain Capital ran several years ago. They were trying to identify what is it about our portfolio companies that differentiates between success and failure. And they looked at any number of variables. One variable, though, came, came to the fore and kind of rose above the others. And that was if the CEO at some point has carried a bag the business will be exponentially more successful. And I think to your point, that proximity to revenue and understanding of how you're actually generating and growing revenue is critical to a growing and a thriving business. Yeah, and you know, um, so I could not agree more. And I'll give you the example of when I uh, started running this division for T-Tech, our vice chairman at the time, uh, said to me one day, it's like at six months into my role. And he said, Judy, my, my, my role, my title was president general manager of this division. And he said, Judy, what do you think your job is? And I think I gave him some really convoluted academic response about, you know, setting the right strategic priorities, blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and he said, your job is to make it rain. I was like, got it. And then that's when I realized you can't make it rain if you don't understand the competitive environment, how well your product is positioned, if you have the right cost structure to be successful. You have to understand all of that in order to make it rain. And so, yeah, I never, I can still hear his booming voice in my head. Your job is to make it rain. Like, got it. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad you brought up T-Tech. You were at AT&T previously. I believe you were running $7 billion division how in the world did you decide to walk away from a $7 billion division? I know that's really an impressive number, isn't it? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I was running the enterprise division. It was quite large and I loved my team. And I came into AT&T right as they were really struggling to compete, frankly, uh, with some of their uh, major competitors. And so we really had to change the culture to be one of, you know, you don't win because you're AT&T, you win because you are the right value for the customer. So there's so much we had to do. So I loved my team, but I really chose to leave for two key reasons. One is my true north. My true north is my family, my husband and my two sons. And at the time I was going to need to move to Texas and that wasn't in their best interest. That's kind of number one. Number two, as, as awesome as that role was, and my people were, 
You know, AT&T is a massive, massive, massive company. And, you know, in a company of that size, an individual doesn't necessarily make a material difference, right? You know, I used to joke that I could go to the south of France for two months and would you miss me? Uh, because these companies are momentum-based businesses, right? Momentum-based results. I could make a bad decision and you may not feel that bad decision for 18 months. And so I really felt that, you know, I wasn't going to learn any more about leadership uh, than, you know, if I stayed there. And it was also a bit of a culture that was very top down, right? So really smart people running the business, made a lot of the decisions. Uh, and it just, I wanted to go somewhere where I could create a different culture. So that's why I walked away. So tell us a little bit about T-Tech. What does the company do and what got you excited about them? Yeah, they are, um, you know, they are what we call ourselves customer experience as a service. And to make that simple for you, it started as a contact center business for probably, you know, 25 out of the 40 years they've been around. So that means those 800 numbers that you, you used to call uh, because your cable was out or your you couldn't read your phone bill or whatever, right? Or your deposit account overdrafted, you know, and they were a contact center business that did uh, contact center work primarily via voice all over the world. And about 15 years ago, which was right about when I joined, we began to say, you know, customer experience is beyond that. People don't necessarily want to uh, to consume products and services in that way. They don't want to solve problems in that way. And those kinds of businesses really are built off of failure demand, right? The reason those phone calls exist is because something happened, something broke. And so we began to build a business that was really all about delivering an amazing customer experience so that it built loyalty for the brand. And you have to do that first and foremost with a lot of technology, right? Because people want to deal with brands in a very different way nowadays. They're more, they would rather self-service. They'd rather figure out a problem on their own. They'd rather find the YouTube video that tells them how to reset their cable box, right? Those kinds of things. They'd rather chat with you uh, to talk about an issue. They'd rather message you to talk about an issue. And so we decided to really build out a massive technology underpinning to our business so that when companies hire us, to deliver customer experience, they're hiring a company that has a very significant cloud-based platform of technology and people, because the pe people aren't going away, right? You still are going to need to talk to people or chat with them or text with them to solve an issue that you have, but we can provide that entire end-to-end -end solution for you. And by, do by providing it end-to-end, -end, we can surround it with analytics and things that really make it... Uh, a continuously improving system so that we are always getting better. So that's who T-Tech is. And I really love that about T-Tech. They happened to buy a company and hired me to run a company that did sales outsourcing. So my job was to build sales and marketing teams on behalf of large brands. And that's what I had spent, you know, 22 years by then doing. And so now I was had the opportunity to do that for other companies. And what I loved about the role is when I could run my own business and create kind of my own culture. But two, I got to deal with companies in all industries, all geographies, all customer segments. And it was a bit like going back to graduate school. It was a bit like a 
case study a day because I had to learn about these businesses and what they needed and how we could help them and and then execute on that and deliver that. And it's just it's just an app. It's an endlessly fascinating business. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. Let's talk about culture for a minute. You once said, I wanted to build a culture rather than fit into one. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that and, and how that's come to fruition at TTAC? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just I uh, I feel like I my career was in some very large companies that had been around for a hundred years, and they had established some you know cultures. And while you could maybe create a bit of the way in which we work inside of a small department or a division, you couldn't really create an overall culture for the business. And so, I felt that there was a real opportunity to do that. And so, um, what I wanted to do was start with really getting to the bottom of what values do we all hold together that we all can agree are the our values in which we want to not only run our business but live our lives by and so you know we started with creating a set of six core values you know like um seek first to understand live life passionately reach for amazing Um, You know, these are these are key values that we live by. So start with values and then make sure that you're using those values uh, to to really find people that want to work within a business that that operates in that way. And so we started to create ways in which we hire people where we facilitated conversations with them that really help them understand. Here's what it's like to work here. Here's what it's like to work together. Because we wanted people to feel that we were all kind of all one family, if you will. And then I guess the last thing is very common shared objectives and metrics so that we all succeeded or failed together, right? And what I love about this business is that it is a bit of a family, right? And that did us a great service during COVID because our very first thought was we need to protect our family, right? We need to protect our people. We need to protect our customers, our employees. And, and that was the kind of culture that I wanted. That's the culture that I observed in the small business that my mother created. And I knew it was possible in a large company, but I really wanted to be given the opportunity to do that. And that's really what I was given the opportunity to do here at T-Tech. The idea that the culture starts with a, a set of shared values is so powerful. And I've seen I've seen when companies are deliberate and thoughtful about that, the change that it can make. The other observation I've had is that building a culture is the compilation of thousands of very, very small sacrifices, sacrifices leaders are making on behalf of the people that work for them, sacrifices of, of the people. It's not part of your day job. It's so easy to cast that to the side, but you really understand where the heart of an organization is based on those small choices and decisions that they make on a daily basis. Yeah, very, very much the case. I'll give you just a quick example. And, you know, our values, by the way, every performance review, we have to um, talk about, does this individual live our values, right? So we we use them in our hiring criteria. It is really, really important. So so here's an example. So um, 
after right about a year ago, after COVID hit, we began to do a lot of work for uh, governments, for state governments in particular, because citizens really needed a lot of help. They either needed help because they couldn't get through to unemployment lines or, you know, we needed to we were doing contact tracing or now we're doing vaccine scheduling. But but it's very urgent work. And one of the bit and so we needed to hire thousands of people to do this work. The, here's what's going to it's funny. The thing that got in our way was we needed to get headsets out to people. So they had, people had laptops at home, people had broadband, they needed a headset. And we needed to ship these headsets, we needed to ship thousands of them. And one day, you know, they're like, we've got people down at our headquarters, boxing up headsets and shipping them out. And I said, well, let me get in my car and go down and help you. And I went down and I boxed up headsets all day long. I drove them myself to the FedEx Express shipping to, you know, group, a place right by our offices. And the number of people that said to me, Judy was in the office boxing up headsets. I'm like, well, of course I was. Like, of course I was boxing up headsets. That we needed, we needed to do that. And to me, that's, um, you know, anybody on my team would do that. Anybody in our company would do that. That's living values. I love that idea. I love that story. And it's a great example of humility being the final achievement. Well, you are certainly a pro when it comes to building high-performance sales organizations. I was talking just the other day to uh, Mark Cranny, who's the COO at a company called Skydio. He was actually the entrepreneur in, in residence at Andreessen for a long time. And he was the person that would drop in and help these startups to build sales organizations. And I said, Mark, what is the big mistake that startups make when it comes to sales? And he said, oh, that's simple. They don't bring in a pro early enough. The founders try to do sales by themselves. They think they can figure it out. He said, there are people who have dedicated their careers to building great sales organizations. Hire them, please. And uh, he said another funny thing. When people ask me how quickly I should hire a sales pro, I say, well, how fast do you want to start making money? So uh, going back to your make it rain quote, can you walk us through your playbook when you land at a company? Um, what is your playbook for building a high performance sales organization? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that. But I'll first of all, I'll tell you that I have a huge bias and that bias is it should be a sales and marketing organization. So that's my bias. Okay. So if you ask me to come in and build a sales organization for you, I will say to you, it's got to start with the product itself, right? So what 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 do we have to sell? How well does it do what it needs to do? How well is it positioned against the marketplace? What need does it solve? And what are the other ways in which those co companies can solve that same need? Somebody told me once, people act on urgent, not on important. And so I always say, so does this solve an urgent need? So I, the, one of the reasons I feel so strongly about sales and marketing being together is it starts with what's on the truck, right? So what's on the truck? How is it positioned? How well does it compete in the marketplace? Because if you, before, you can't build a sales organization without first answering that question, because depending upon that solution, that defines then the target markets and the buyer personas inside of those target markets. And you want to match up those buyer personas with the right kind of salesperson persona, right? Because it's a bit of a dating game, if you will, right? You want the right kinds of people selling to the right kinds of people. And so for me, it starts first and foremost with the product or the solution itself and making sure that we've got that right. And then building a sales organization to achieve that. So 
if your solution is very, it's very key to be industry um, specific, then you've got to make sure you bring in salespeople that can speak to those industries and, you know, have a level of knowledge around those industries. So to me, that's really key in building a critical, a key sales organization. The other thing I'd say is it's not just about sales. While sellers get all the glory and the bell rings for the seller and et cetera, et cetera, you know, in business to business sales, which is really what my entire, most of my entire life has been, um, it's really about a team. It's a team sell. And it's a team sell because the solution's often so complex that you need kind of product specialists around you. So sales enablement is critical in a high-performing sales organization. That seller may be the relationship owner, if you will. They may have the connection to the customer, but they need to surround themselves with deal teams that bring in subject matter expertise, that help build the right solutions, right? That, that tell the stories for the customer. And so I feel as strongly about building out sales enablement as I do having a great kind of front-facing sales team. But to me, it's all three of those things combined, right? Great product, which means great marketing, great front-facing salespeople, and a great enablement team that sits underneath them. I want to put a finer point on a couple of your observations. If you think about what it takes to hire, onboard, and bring a salesperson to productivity, it could be a year. The, the hiring process it itself could take a quarter. Onboarding, um, training, onboarding, and getting them to their first revenue, that's a year. If you haven't done the homework up front to un understand what is my target market, who are my buyer personas, what is the hiring profile I need to engage those, you're not going to know for a year if you made a decision. And at that point, if you have made a decision, the the cost can be huge. So I love I love this idea that you're you're talking about, which is do your homework up front, bring all the groups together. I wanted to talk also a little bit about two concepts I've heard you uh, incorporate into your model. One is the solutions factory and another is the storyteller. These are terms that don't usually come up in the context of sales. What are those? Yeah. So somebody said to me the other day, solutions factory, do I really want to work in a solutions factory? So I'll tell you what that means. So, you know, again, most of our solutions are bespoke. So the cust, you know, every single customer has a slightly different situation and we're, and we're doing customer experience transformation for them. So what that means is this is not something I can take off the shelf and say, Hey, what fit for this client fits for this client. It's got to be developed. So the way we, the way the solutions factory works is we have a group of people that are the intake, as I call it. And the intake uses a wonderful process called medic, which is really a conversation with the seller and what is going to be the deal team to talk about what is this customer trying to accomplish? What outcomes are they trying to produce? What have they tried in the past? What's worked? What hasn't worked? So it's really a conversation to help us get smart about what they are really looking for from us. The storyteller, which is also part of the Solutions Factory, is listening to this conversation because from that moment on, that storyteller is weaving the chapters of the story. And so the, the Solutions Factory, the reason we call it this is it's got the in-tech people that evaluate what type of an opportunity it is. Those people then bring the deal team together that are all the different subject matter experts. They build out the solution, which is really a very big Excel model that has all these inputs and outcomes, et cetera, which then involves costing and pricing. 
And then they they take all of that and they give it to the storyteller who writes the proposal. Because we like to sell our solutions in the form of a story. And why is that? Because for the most part, we're trying to get these customers to envision, here is what this will look like from the eyes of your customer. And the way, again, the way you have to do that is kind of through a, through a story-like uh, process. So we've d- we decided that the best way to do this is to put them all together in one single team. And we happen to call it the Solutions Factory. So um, although I did get that negative comment about factory, so I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll have to change the name. That's a wonderful description, though, of solution selling. It is so easy to get drawn into the trap of selling features and functions. But what you just walk through, engaging with the customer, understanding what their needs are, their objectives, translating that into some hard, tangible value that you can create, and then playing that back to them in the form of a narrative that's going to bring to life not only what you can do today with them, but this relationship you can build over time. That's a wonderful model. I think that especially B2B enterprise sales would be well served if they think about each of those pieces and how they've incorporated those into their motion. All right. Well, Judy, you are definitely a student of the game. You've been at this and have acquired a wealth of knowledge and experience. My guess is, though, that it probably hasn't been all up and to the right. You've you've hit your share of of uh, roadblocks and, and stumbled a bit. Tell us a little bit about maybe something, a time when you did trip up in your career and what you learned from it. Yeah, believe me, it's more than once. That's for sure. Um, and I think part of the reason why it's more than once is you know, I've always felt that you should take on roles that feel uncomfortable. You know, that, uh, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking, oh, my God, today's the day I'm going to be, you know, found out as a fraud that I don't really know how to do this job. (laughs) And I feel like that's kind of the key to success to some extent. And so, yeah, I've had some pretty, pretty difficult times. Uh, When I first came into T-TAC and I took over uh, running a company that they had just purchased, um, you know, companies often are for sale because they, you know, they are challenged and um, they've had some deferred maintenance as a result of, that has led to those challenges. And that's what this particular company was. And I really needed to uh, very quickly come in and cl- and kind of clean up the, the issues that this company had, which meant that I was going to have to if I could not renegotiate um, contracts with certain customers, I was going to have to let those customers go. Uh, and by letting those customers go, I was going to have to let the teams go that served those customers. And that meant having to let go of people. And here I was, this brand new president of this division. Who is this woman coming from, you know, a big company? And now she's, you know, taking our company and, and you know, destroying it, right? And so I didn't act quickly. I tried for probably close to two years to make some of those programs work uh, with trying to pull a variety of levers when at the end of the day, structurally, it just wasn't going to happen. And I lost two years. And when you step back and reflect on it now, that division is highly successful, but it took us longer than it needed to. And if I had really stepped back to, to, to realize that while this was going to be difficult, it was in the best interest of the company and of the employees to do the right thing as quickly as you knew it was the right thing. And I didn't do that. I hesitated. There's a great book. It's called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. And he makes a, an astute point. Leaders have a unique 
opportunity. It's a moment in time when they come into an organization to effect, if need be, radical change. But he also emphasizes the fact a leader needs to assess what is needed in the moment. Do they have a burning platform? And if they do, time is the enemy. And you've got to move fast over being very thoughtful and and long-range thinking. You just got to make decisions. At other times, the business is in a good place. And what you want to do is continue or accelerate the momentum. So I I think that's a wonderful story about a moment when you had a burning platform, uh, being decisive and acting quickly is a key. And, you know, building the confidence to do that, it does take experience. So appreciate you sharing that. Well, Judy, we are at the end of our time. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us. I've got one final question. As you look back across your career and across your life, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's one thing, but I think it's very easily two things. And the first is, you know, nobody does this alone. So I've been immeasurably blessed with amazing role models, starting with my mother, going through some amazing managers in my career that just saw something in me and gave me the confidence uh, to to do the learning that I needed to do to become uh, the leader that I needed to be. So to me, having mentors and role models has been essential. And that also uh, are people in my life. So my husband, my my sister, you know, people that are just always there. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. My husband, I went off to graduate school and my husband worked remotely uh, in Palo Alto while I was in graduate school. And I remember somebody turning to him at a dinner one day and said, do you follow your wife around the country or something like that? And he looked at them and he said, what are you talking about? She's not my competition. And the fact that I have this amazingly supportive, uh, you know, person in my life is everything. And it's, it gives you the confidence to, I think, take take um, take chances. And so that's to me, the second thing is take chances. And that's the point I made earlier is step into roles that feel uncomfortable to you um, because you know you need to learn. You'll walk into them, I think, with the humility that you need and with the, the re- realization that you have to listen to the people that are there doing the work. You have to listen. You're not going to be successful if you don't listen. So take those chances. And I don't think... I would have been successful without taking chances and I would not have taken chances without people in my life that, that, you know, were kind of pushing me from behind saying, of course you can do this. Of course you can do this. Well, Judy, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the hour with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.